Welcome to Tea and Theology. This is Richard Ward, and I'm here with my wife, Danielle. Hello, hello. And our good friend, Brian Morris. Hi, everybody. In this episode, we'll be discussing why we can trust the Bible. But before we get into our discussion, Danielle, would you please tell us about the tea we're drinking? Yes, we are drinking a honey chamomile, and we're excited to talk to our friend, Brian Morris. In this episode, we're discussing why we can trust the Bible. Let's start with a brief breakdown of how we went from the original writings of the Bible to what we're holding in our hands today. First off, it was not Nicaea. A lot of people like to say, oh, the Council of Nicaea, Constantine came up with the biblical canon, which is demonstrably false. There's no support for that. But it actually goes back quite a bit further than that. So the Old Testament canon is the same exact thing as the Hebrew. So if you go into a Hebrew synagogue, you'll find their Old Testament canon is the same as what we have. A little bit of difference as it comes to the Apocrypha. I'll get there in a moment. The New Testament canon is finished before or around 90 AD. Kind of depends on when you date the book of Revelation. I lean towards an earlier dating of the book of Revelation, but... The one thing I haven't looked into is, does that change when John's epistles were written? So all that to say, though, almost everybody agrees 90 AD is kind of the cutoff point for when the New Testament was written. So this was all completed really within a generation of Jesus's death and resurrection. But then in terms of the compilation or of the canon, you've got in, I want to say it's 367, you have... Um, Athanasius Easter letter. And in that you've got him compiling a list of everything that's considered to be in the new Testament canon. And it's exactly the same as what we have today. A few things are in the different places and where we place them, but all that to say the church had pretty much universally agreed on what the new Testament canon was by 400 AD with a little bit of an issue that came up in fourth century between um, Jerome and Augustine, as they debated over the inclusion of what we as Protestants would refer to as the Apocrypha. So those are the extra books that are in the Catholic Bible. So it wasn't until the fourth century that anyone really considered those scripture. And even as anyone who knows church history would know, there was still debate over that even between then and Luther, with Luther dismissing them. So Around 300 and so on AD, pretty much everyone had already agreed on what was to be included in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is relatively early, but even then church tradition dates back further than that. You'll see inclusion of books from first century, or sorry, second century scholars such as Irenaeus or Polycarp or um, others. But with that, you've got a lot of affirmation of what we know as the Bible even early on in church history. And yet, there's still quite a bit of time between where we're at today and that. And so kind of a brief history of how we get to the English translation would be, you've got the Vulgate translated in the 4th century, which the Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Greek and Hebrew Testaments, where Jerome um, compiles what he's got, translates it into Latin, and that is their Bible up until... About 382 AD, um, it was universally Latin, as far as I can recall. So in 1382, Wycliffe translates, John Wycliffe, that is, translates the Bible from Latin into English. 
some people like to make comments about Bible being a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. This is not true. Generally speaking, when translations are done, especially modern translations, they go back to the original languages. Wycliffe is one of the few exceptions where he did translate from Latin. The reason for this is Wycliffe did not have access to those Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that we have today. And so Wycliffe, though, was martyred for this because English was considered a profane language. There's some language that's said of, of English that I won't use for the sake of keeping away from an explicit tag, but it was not considered a highly regarded language, and to translate from Latin into English was considered to corrupt the scriptures. Yet Wycliffe has been known as the morning star of the Reformation because of his work here leading to his martyrdom, and then 200 years almost, not quite, 150 years pass, Luther in 1522 translates the Bible into German. Luther does what he can to go from Greek and from Hebrew. And so between, sorry, between 1522 and 1534, Luther translates the Bible into German from Greek and Hebrew. And around the same time, though, we've got somebody else who, for our interests of how we get the Bible in English, William Tyndale. William Tyndale is one of my favorite um, figures in church history because of how much we're indebted to him as Christians today, especially in an English-speaking country. In 1526, William is working on his, or excuse me, William Tyndale is working on his English translation of the scriptures. He's martyred in 1536, and he's martyred for translating the Bible into English. Same reasons as Wycliffe. But also, there's this idea that if the Bible is translated into English, then the pastors or the priests or the bishops or the religious leadership will lose power because other people have access to the scriptures, which has scary ramifications to it. So Wycliffe is arrested. While he's arrested, he requests the same things that Paul requests of Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Um, he asks for a cloak. He asks for his Hebrew Old Testament and some parchment. And I think he asks for his lexicon as well, so he can write and continue to translate. Tyndale translates the entire New Testament and part of the Old Testament. I think he translates the Pentateuch. I think that's it. But he's martyred in 1536. At one point during Tyndale's life, he's speaking to a religious figure. I want to say it's like a bishop, but I don't remember the exact title. And he tells the man, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will make the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. So translating that to modern English, essentially Tyndale tells this religious figure, if God allows, I want the boy who mows the lawn to know the Bible better than you, the religious leader, to. Um, which is incredible because fast forward to 2023, his desire is actually true because of his work to translate into English. And at the death of Tyndale in 1536, he says and prays, um, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Three years later, in 1539, the king commissions for there to be an English Bible in each church. This Bible is known as the Coverdale Bible. It was translated, and it was not translated. It was compiled by Miles Coverdale, translated by William Tyndale. The vast majority of the work that is in this, what's known as the Coverdale Bible or the Great Bible, 
was mostly Tyndale's work. It was Tyndale's entire New Testament, and the parts that Tyndale did not translate were translated from German and Latin by Miles Coverdale. And it was commissioned by Thomas Cromwell as well. So with all of that, you've got three years after Tyndale's death, the King of England has worked to make there to be a translation. Not long after that, because of the issues with the translation from the German and from the Latin, the Geneva Bible is translated. That's in 1560, heavily influenced by Calvin, hence Geneva. It was done in Switzerland because you could not translate the Bible in England without that um, affirmation. Even, even Tyndale did not translate the Bible in England, but he had to go elsewhere to translate it. And so Puritans translate the Geneva Bible in 1560, and they're given... Um, approval and safety from Calvin in Geneva, which is why it's known as the Geneva Bible. But the issues come about because it is the Puritans. So the Puritans called the Pope the Antichrist. The Puritans also denied the divine secession of kings. But for its day, the Geneva Bible was the best-selling Bible. King didn't like that, which is where we get the King James Version. So in 1611, the King James Version comes, and about 70% of the King James is William Tyndale's translation. So all that to say, we still are very indebted to Tyndale's work. You can Google phrases coined by William Tyndale, and you'll find all sorts of phrases that he had to find a way to respect that idiom in Greek and translate it into English. There's still quite a bit from 1611 KJV to today. Um, it's a little bit less interesting, though, um, because it's not as much divisive. The KJV was updated or revised, excuse me, in 1881, which is known as the revised version. And then in 19... It's either 1901 or 1911, the... American Standard Version, which became the other major translation for that century. And then from there, kind of just to answer the question of why we've got all sorts of translations we have today, at some point we began to find more and more and more and more reliable text types or manuscripts or things like that that have really shaped and helped with our translation. One of those is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has led into, oh, we can translate this thing differently because there was a variant, and we'll discuss variants in a moment, but with that being the case, we've found more evidence for the Bible, which is in our favor, not against it, contrary to what some people think. And that leads us to have more confidence in the scriptures. So I feel like we hear this question a lot, a very important question. How do we know which books belong in the Bible? That's a great question. So it's the 66 that we have in our Bible is the easy answer, but... With that being said, the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Protestant churches all agree on those 66. The, there's a few of debate beyond those 66. And so there is a criteria in what was included. So the Hebrew canon, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the same for Jews today as it is for Christians. So there's no debate over the Old Testament, really, with the exception of the Apocrypha. The New Testament, again, the same thing. The church accepts the same books 
again, there was no massive council of people agreeing on these things, but it was just church tradition leading through these. And the three main criteria for the New Testament was that there was an association to a disciple or an apostle. And so we see this with a few exceptions, but with the Gospels, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those all have some sort of connection to an apostle. So Luke and Mark both have connection to Paul, um, as well as you've got John himself being a disciple, and the same thing with Matthew. And then with the Pauline letters, all of those being Paul, of course. And then you've got Peter having writing, having written his two letters, James and Jude being the brother of Jesus, but or brothers of Jesus. And then you've got the big one of debate is Hebrews. Because it seems that Hebrews, well, church tradition has included Hebrews at one point because they thought it was written by Paul. You'll see this represented in things like John Knox and his commentary on Hebrews says and credits it to Paul even in the introduction. Same thing with Calvin. In Calvin's commentary on Hebrews, he says that it is written by Paul. I am very indebted to both of them and value their commentary on the books of, on the book of Hebrews. I disagree with them. And that's because the writer of Hebrews says that he... Um, received these things, and the way the language he uses makes it sound as if he's not a first-generation Christian. But that leads to the question is, okay, so he's not a disciple, he's not an apostle, he's not closely associated, it doesn't appear, so why do we include it? Well, there's two other criteria that are used, and that's one is church tradition. Has the church universally accepted this? And Hebrews would check a yes on that one. So an example of where we wouldn't do this is something like the Gospel of Judas. Well, it's written by Judas, but the church has never accepted... Well, it wasn't written by Judas. It claims to have been written by Judas. But the church has never accepted the gospel of Judas. And there's another criteria, and that doesn't match the rule of faith. And the gospel of Judas does not. So the gospel of Judas, in the end of it, has got something wild about how Jesus wasn't really crucified, and Jesus and Judas swapped places, and Judas was crucified, and it, it's bogus, and it doesn't match anything within church tradition or within the rule of faith. So that one's excluded, but Hebrews matches both of those. So Hebrews is included. And yet in the midst of that, we can really trust and know that because what we see is God enduring and God preserving his scriptures in such a way that what we have as the New Testament, what we have as the Old Testament have been agreed upon for centuries. And even outside of the first century or so, um, I've heard it said that if we did not even have the manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, we could still reassemble the New Testament from quotes of first century church scholars, which is pretty significant because that means they cited the scriptures that much and they held them in that much reverence that they would be so dependent upon them. So Danielle and I were talking to some Mormons a few months ago. One of the things that they mentioned was that our Bible has changed. The words we have today aren't exactly the words that were written originally. How can we know that what was originally written hasn't been changed? Well, it, one, it depends on what they mean by changed. Because generally speaking, well, one, the Book of Mormon does not offer that same security either. Moreover, though... There is overwhelming amounts of historical evidence. Like, there is ridiculous amounts of historical evidence that show that that claim is bogus. Um, there's a video that the Ark Encounter did. And if you go to arkencounter.com slash Bible dash true dash beans, you can watch this video and 
it's super well done where what is done is they compare using coffee beans, the amount of manuscripts and text types for various different first century works. They compare the number of manuscripts we have for various different important historical works. And then they compare the Bible. It's a great video. So pause this and go to YouTube or go to that website because you'll see that what they do is they pour a whole entire bag of coffee beans for the New Testament and for the Bible because we have so much overwhelming amount of evidence for the Bible that it is clearly an act of God. I mean, an example of this would be, so for Plato, we have, for Plato, there exists like eight manuscripts that are not anywhere near, uh, I think they're 800 years after Plato died, and there's only a handful of manuscripts, and none of them are complete. But based upon the amount of stock we put into Plato and Platonic philosophy, you would think we'd have more than that, but we don't. And so compared to that, and Plato being a significant figure in philosophy as well, but then you look at the Bible, and you see that there's these instances where people have copied it, and they copied these things carefully. People love to say there were copies of copies of copies, and they were sloppy. They weren't. They very carefully copied these things. And we know that because when they make mistakes, they go back and correct them in many of these cases, which if they weren't concerned with accuracy, if they weren't concerned with reliability, they would not have copied them carefully or corrected themselves. But all that to say, there's an overwhelming amount of historical evidence that shows that the words we have, the language we have is correct. And we can compare between one manuscript and another. And more often than not, they agree. It, the areas where you see in your New Testament or, or even Old Testament, some manuscripts say this. When they say that, it's because there's actually an overwhelming amount of things that represent both points. But that's because we have so many of these copies that we can compare and know what's correct, what's not correct. And in the few instances where there's a bit of debate, is where we see those marginal notes. Yeah, it's not like scholars are trying to hide something. When you read a Bible, for example, the ESV, pick any modern translation, they have footnotes on the bottom. There's actually a lot of research that's behind the choices they make when it comes to what we actually have in the Bible. Yes, and it's worth noting that in those instances where there is manuscript differences that none of them ever make a significant change in theology. None of them have a significant bearing on theology. And someone might say, well, Brian, what about Mark 16, the long ending of Mark? Well, if you look at Mark 16 and you compare it to other texts of scripture, even, I mean, assuming you're going to say Mark 16 is not authentic, which is what I would say, but there's debate on that. And so if you look at that, you can find all of that in either Acts or you can find it in um, Matthew's. So if you look at Matthew's Great Commission, you compare that to um, Mark, you'll see that those things are still there. Or even if you look to Luke's gospel, you'll see the things of the resurrection are still there. And then so the one issue becomes, well, what about the snakes? Well, for one, don't read in a Pentecostal view of that verse. That's dangerous. But also take note of, if you're going to look at the snake part that Mark references, well, look at what Paul happens in Acts. Paul's bitten by a snake and he shakes it off exactly what Mark writes, quote unquote Mark, exactly what is added there by whoever agrees with what was written in Acts. So it doesn't make a major change of theology. And none of these variants or none of these additions or whatever you might render them as make a major change in theology. So it doesn't change much about our faith at all that there might be some disagreements or anything of the sort. Mm -hmm. With the one exception of the Bible that poorly rendered 
and this isn't a text type, this is a translation, there's the Sinner's Bible, which accidentally says, thou shall commit adultery. That's the one exception. But that's not an actual variant. That's a bad print. So what does the Bible say about the reliability of Scripture? The Bible very strongly affirms its own reliability. The question that this then kind of forces us to ask, though, is can we trust the Bible to speak about itself? And that's a very modern or postmodern question. But yes, absolutely, we can. Mm-hmm. And it's something that um, theologians would call the self-authentication of Scripture. And the idea is that Scripture can and does affirm its reliability. I would go so far to say that Scripture is the only reliable source that is able to do such. And that's if the Bible is indeed the Word of God, then nothing else aside from the Word of God is able to say whether it's true or false. And therefore, we have to use the Scriptures to affirm the Scriptures. And yet, the Bible itself is extremely clear about its reliability, about its faithfulness. If we look at Psalm 19, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, the in Psalm 19 we have a repeated repetition in various different language that the Bible is reliable, it is true, it is perfect. If we consider the longest passage in the entirety of the Bible, what's it about? Anybody who's heard me teach in a Sunday school before would likely know that I've said over and over and over again that Psalm 119 is a love letter to the law of the Lord. And that's because it's a hundred and some odd verses devoted to the psalmist declaring that the law of the Lord is good and right and pure. So Psalm Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light to my path. So that gives us really the what the purpose of the scriptures are, is that it guides us. In verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so... On the one hand, the psalmist is declaring that the word is good and valuable and the law is good and valuable. On the other hand, to say that the sum of your word is truth would mean that, I mean, if we think about math, the sum is the conclusion of or the end of or what it all adds up to is truth. So if the Bible's saying that it's all true, then either it's all true or it's not. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we have... Paul writing that the scriptures are breathed out by God or inspired. And it says that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if the Bible says that it's breathed out by God, then therefore it should reflect God. And if God is the one who's breathing it out, if God is the one who's inspiring his authors to write it, then... It should reflect the fact that God is holy, God is true, God is good, God is perfect, and that his word should also reflect his qualities. 
In 2 Peter, we also have a few statements from Peter concerning the scriptures. 2 Peter 1, uh, 20 to 21, Peter writes that, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So even there, Peter gives us the definition of inspiration and how the writers would have written. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but also that it's not one man's own interpretation, but that it's been, as Paul writes, inspired or breathed out by God. But then Peter later in chapter 3 begins to speak of Paul's letters in three fourteen through 18, and I won't read those, but he writes, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to these matters. And in this area, he begins almost immediately after to compare it to Scripture. So Peter himself is writing and saying what Paul is writing as Scripture, and he lumps in really the New Testament in the way that it's written, and also says that it's written by God or carried along by the Holy Spirit, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, to go back to kind of the second question I posed in there is, if we cannot trust what the Bible says about itself, then how do we trust the Bible at all? So there are a lot of Bible teachers in the world who actually don't believe in the reliability of the Bible. Why is it important that we do believe the Bible as Christians, the whole thing? Well, on the one hand, when we lose the reliability of Scripture, we lose everything. Because if we can't trust one part of Scripture, how can we trust other parts of Scripture? If, again, the Bible says the sum of your word is truth, when you remove parts of that sum, you no longer have the sum of that word. And sum, of course, being S-U-M, not S-O-M-E. So the completed matter, not just bits and pieces. And yet there's a story in church history that sort of addresses this. So Martin Luther, if people know much about Luther's feelings on the book of James, they would know that he called it a strawy epistle and that he believed it should be cast into the fire. The interesting thing is in Luther's German Bible, James is still included. Because Luther may not have liked it because he couldn't reconcile what James says about faith without works is dead with what he reads in Paul's epistles, but he also did not have the evidence to say that it's not scripture. So he didn't like it, but he believed it was inspired. And so in that circumstance, he found himself subject to the scriptures, not making the scriptures subject to himself. And that's what we do when we want to pick and choose scripture. If we want to say, well, this isn't inspired because I don't like the way this was written, which is what we have people doing, especially now in our modern age. And you've got, in I guess progressive Christianity would be the term to use, where they would say, well, certain parts aren't as good as others. We can trust the writings about Jesus and the gospels, but we cannot trust the miracles. I mean, we can think back to something like the Jefferson Bible that got rid of all the miracles and miraculous stuff, but kept his teachings. Well, even just keeping Jesus' teachings, that's not the original work. How can you trust the teachings to be authentic if you can't trust the miracles to be authentic? We don't get to pick and choose. We're not, we're not the authorities of Scripture. Scripture is the authority of itself. And yet, if we lose that reliability of Scripture, we lose pretty much everything. And it has significant ramifications even on our culture. If we think about how the Bible has influenced culture, we think about how the Bible has influenced even our own constitution in the United States. 
at what point can we say, oh, if the Bible's not inspired, if the Bible's not what it says it is, if the Bible's false, then where do we get to say, thou shall not murder? I mean, that, that's a law we still keep today, and we get that from the Bible. So at what point do those things begin to crumble and fall apart? And ultimately, even outside of that, people would say, well, murder's wrong because culture has said it's wrong. But why? And we also answer that with scripture, because human beings are made in the image of God. And so you don't just get to pick and choose because of how closely intertwined the scriptures are. As I've been teaching through um, Leviticus and Exodus at my church and preaching through the Psalms this summer, specifically through Psalms 71 through 80, the scriptures are very reliant and referencing back to themselves. So over and over again, the psalmists between, in that block of Psalms are referring back to the Exodus. They're referring to the time in the wilderness, they're referring to the kings, and so much of scripture is dependent upon other aspects of scripture. This past Sunday, I had preached on Psalm 78, and if you look at Psalm 78, which is the second longest psalm in scripture, you will see that over and over again, the psalmist is dependent upon the history of the Israelite people, but he's referring back to things that are specifically written in the Pentateuch, specifically things that are written in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in 1 Samuel, and so the scripture ends up becoming dependent upon itself in manners that we don't get to pick and choose. Even as we look at the New Testament and how often the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament over and over and over again. I mean, there's an entire book from D.A. Carson and G.K. Beale that is a commentary on how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. The scriptures are very dependent upon themselves. And if you begin to try to pick and choose... At some point, you're going to have to go back and go, oh, wait, this was said elsewhere here. This was said elsewhere here. And you're going to find yourself with the exact same thing. So sometimes we hear people doubting the reliability of the Bible because there are so many translations. How would you respond to somebody like that? Read the preface of the translations that you're looking at. Translation philosophy is part of the reason why we have different translations. Not every translation is good. There are bad translations. Example, the Passion Translation is a bad translation. Do not read the Passion Translation. But that being said, many of the translations you see, whether you're looking at the NIV or the NASB or the ESV or the LSB or the ASV or the KJV, most of the time they agree. They're very seldom different. But the reason for that is, well, not everybody reads the same way. English changes. We don't read Tyndale's Bible because we don't read 1536 English. If you try to read Tyndale's Bible, you're going to be really confused because you don't speak that language. It's the same thing with the King James. We don't use that language today. And some people love it because it's poetic, it's beautiful language. But the question becomes, if you sit down and you read the King James and you haven't finished sixth grade, are you actually understanding it? And so there's a, there's a story with Billy Graham where someone came up to Billy Graham and asked him, which Bible translation's best? And his response was simply, the one that you will read every day. I've referenced that a lot. The Bible that you can read and understand and actually helps to prepare you and to be equipped for every good work and inspires you to maturity in the faith, that's the scripture you could read. But again, there's some that I prefer over others. I do preach and read and study from the ESV, but there are still many good translations. And in many cases... They're just trying to faithfully represent the translation into English in a way that the modern reader can understand. So the variety of translations is actually to our benefit, not our detriment. And we should cherish that we have so many translations. And I've got 
at least 20 Bibles in my office and a variety of different translations. I mainly stick to just one, but if need be, you can always compare it to another translation and see, oh, these are actually close, more closely connected than you might think. What resources would you recommend for this subject? Yeah, I've got a bunch, actually. Um, but for the sake of time, I'll kind of condense it. So first of which, there's a, a book. I have not read the book, but I can recommend it because I went to a conference from the authors of the book. So the book's called Scribes and Scripture from John Mead and Peter Gurry. And some of the information I said today, I'm actually indebted to their lectures um, because I went to a conference called Scribes and Scripture. And so they've also got a website called Text and Canon Institute. I think it's textandcanon.org. And there they have all sorts of articles of the same sort of topics that we've discussed today. And with that, you can have all sorts of things about the reliability of Scripture, the, the compilation of the canon, things of that nature. And they've done some great work. It's through Phoenix Seminary. And they've got a variety of great scholars who are working on this sort of stuff. So their book, um, their lectures, if you can find them outside of that, but also their website would be a great place. Rob Plummer also has a fantastic book on this called 40 Questions for Interpreting the Bible. The language goes beyond that as well, where he's not just dealing with the scriptures, but he is in his, I think his first section is devoted to the questions we've discussed today. Rob Plummer also has some uh, videos on YouTube of the same nature that were published through Southern Seminary that address, like, how can we trust the Bible? How do we get the Bible today? So if you look up on YouTube, Rob Plummer Bible or Rob Plummer Southern Seminary, you will find these resources, and they are really well done. Um, Dr. Plummer was one of my professors in seminary, and he's a great guy. YouTube has an abundance of resources. Ligonier has a great... um, lecture on this that Stephen Nichols did. So you can look up Ligonier, look up Stephen Nichols, Ligonier Bible. You'll find some really incredible stuff. There's a video in my watch list that I'm going to watch about Vodi Bakum with how we can trust the Bible. Um, though I've not watched it, I can tell the direction he's going and it's going to be very solid. And then again, I mentioned earlier the Ark Encounter video which you can find that on YouTube. If you type in like reliability of the Bible, coffee beans, you'll probably find it. But arkencounter.com slash Bible dash two dash beans will give you this same thing. Um, and it's a great illustration of how we can rely the on the manuscripts we have, on the text evidence we have, and all sorts of stuff of that nature. I've read scribes and scriptures. And in that book, in the introduction, they mentioned the story of Mary and her Bible. That's one of the most inspiring stories that I've ever heard on the Bible. But the coolest story. I mean, I felt like I wanted to cry like five times. <laughs> so at the time that Wycliffe was translating the Bible, it cost 15 years wage to purchase a Bible. And consider how today we can, if you're going to buy a Bible, you can get one for a dollar at Goodwill. You can get a cheap paperback Bible. If you've got access to the internet, you can get it for free. Which, to consider that William Tyndale was martyred for the translation of the Bible, same with John Wycliffe, and to consider that there are still people today, even even there's an example of a man whose name is Brother Andrew. He smuggled Bibles into the Iron Curtain. And eventually, if I remember the story right, eventually he was killed for it. But he was 
smuggling Bibles into Soviet Russia so that people could have the scriptures in their language. So people have gone great deals to make sure that Christians, or even just individuals, can have the Bible in their own language. And for that reason, we should never take for granted the blessing that we have a plethora of translations that are good translations. Again, not the Passion Translation, bad translation. But, and I say that because it's becoming popular, um, but we should rejoice and celebrate the fact that we have an immense amount of access to Bible translations for free in our own language that we can understand and read and cherish. And it should encourage us to read the Bible all the more. Thank you for listening to Tea and Theology. We hope that you join us next time. May the Lord bless you.